back once again. This is How to Pakistan with Musharraf Zaidi and myself. Um, so good to be back. We've been taking too many breaks, but hopefully we're going to set this up right after Eid, where we do it more regularly than we have today. We're going to be speaking about, you know, Donald Trump and his threat to Pakistan. I'll open it. I'm really a fan of that piece you did for the news. You've also done another one for the New York Times, also really good, but I've just phenomenal piece in the news. I love the way that it was articulated. So just to quickly catch people up on this. In, you know, I think one of the great takeouts from your piece was, which was that at this particular time, you know, when you have uh, somebody like Donald Trump say something about Pakistan, effectively threaten it, and threaten it with, you know, relatively vague terms, but then there's this sort of pull towards, you know, we all present a united front. But I actually think it's interesting that a lot of people, not that many, but some people are saying is like, what's the upside to the strategy we're pursuing, the one that's potentially getting us mired into trouble? And, you know, so that was one of the things that I found very interesting about the piece that you put up is like, you know, what is the benefit of this one instrument the Haqqanis, which doesn't really tangibly show up. And it's just putting so much in stock into maybe a future of Afghanistan where this is just one group of many who might eventually uh, come to power. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, that's why I wrote the piece. I don't know the answer, you know. I, yeah. uh, in fact, I would go further. I would say that we've assumed that the policy is trying to manage the Afghan Taliban don't take out the Haqqanis totally. Yeah. Uh, and essentially then hope for the best. Yes. I'm not sure that's uh, consistent. That kind, of, that kind of public policy is consistent with stability or with the needs of 208 people. Yeah. 208 million people. Yeah. 208 million people. In 19 years, I'm just shocked at <laughs> how fast we've grown. Like... It is stupendous. We, I mean, I literally forgot that's popping babies, 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 babies. popping babies, babies, <laughs> babies, babies, babies. It's uh, you know, we got. I think the re, you know one of the things we haven't done is we haven't done this very frequently. Yeah, as you just as you just mentioned, and so it makes me very reflective in these conversations. And because we're not talking about something else, we're talking yeah. about the stuff that yeah. I've already kind of so I have a friend who left a Facebook message yeah. and he was very skeptical because he'd read one of the pieces right. and so then I instead of I don't do the whole responding on social media thing I mean I do for like one round but I've often found you're that, too big for that stuff. no no that's, <laughs> no that's not the reason well, no no don't respond to the plebs no 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 that's not plebs these are friends of mine some of, and plebs. some of them are <laughs> <laughs> nee, nee, nee. There's a very clear reason yeah. for that, right? I found over lots and lots of experience of engaging electronically, and this it doesn't goes back, work. <laughs> this goes back to like jock days, right? Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. know, basically, and and I remember being sort of the you know the, the young stud that straps yeah. up, walks up to the mic, and yeah. says, "That was garbage. <laughs> you're full of crap, man. Hypervis yeah. hey, boy. Yeah. You're nonsense. I've been there, man. Yeah. You know, and so." And because I've been there, I know how futile uh, 
this is this is an engagement. This is look at all the words I know. Yes. And look at all the people I read. Yeah. And look at what conversations I was. And by the way, it's the same deal like on the other side. Like there's nothing special about what I write other than the fact that I'm writing it. And there's nothing special about what you write or yeah. say other than that. So I think it's actually, I'd like to think that it's, it's, it's an expression of humility. Getting into these debates, long-winded debates on social media, to me, seems like a futile exercise because for two reasons. One, in most circumstances, I'm not looking to be convinced, right? Mm. I may be, I have been compelled mm. uh, by several people, but in particular by one or two people over the last decade where I've engaged in long debates with these people, but those have been debates that have taken all night mm. over weeks. So I've spent, so for example, one, one example of somebody that I've really learned from in, in, a, in a substantive way, and he's substantially younger than me, but Umar Varaj, uh, yeah. who, you yeah. know, so Umar used to ch- and still challenge, oh, yeah. unbelievably gifted, and he yeah. still challenges pretty much everything yeah, that I have to say. Yeah. But he really, one of the people that's taught me how to think differently and how to be more uh, open to people who maybe I had categorized in a certain box, I've actually been able to open up those boxes and actually learn from people mm. because of Umar. But I, what I'm trying to say is it's very rare that you'll come across the person who convinces you and compels you and then you actually change your mind about stuff. Most of the social media interaction that I, that I see and that I also have been a part of is actually not in that category. It's mostly, hey, I feel this way. Well, okay, good. And I feel this way. And, and to me, that's really a useful exchange and anything beyond that is not useful. Yeah. How does this relate to the Trump speech? I think Pakistan's been conducting foreign policy and national security policy a little bit like a teenager online. Hmm. This is how I feel. Yeah. That's talk actually to, talk a, to the hand. That's a very good analogy. Right? Yeah. Because, so, I mean, I, so one of the reasons I enjoyed that is because I also think that whereas you've got this framing by the US, which I have a problem with, right? Which is this presumptive status that the only reason they're not winning is because one country is undermining them. And despite being an ally for so many years, that says, and I've actually always believed that the basis of the US-Pakistan relationship, one is a stated basis and one is an agreed basis where both know that both aren't fully on board on some things and that a little bit of backstabbing is part of the course of this particular relationship. So when one articulates something else, like the rules are now changing, we've been okay with this for so far. But in that particular, I mean, the moment I hear the word herith in the way you respond, right? well, that is a good goal in itself if you want to be self-sufficient or whatever. But if your basic strategy is that, okay, one dependency will be replaced by another that is emergent, that we're going to go somewhere else, I don't think that's particularly that strong, especially when you're just in the business of putting all your eggs in one basket. Bro, listen, I, actually, I don't know why you're cutting this word that it, this much slack in the context of foreign policy and national security. Does Pakistan have legs? No, I mean, we've got severe dependencies. No, no, do we have legs? In what form? Do we have legs? Like to run it on our own? 
No, I'm, it's just a simple question. Uh-huh. Does Pakistan have legs? I'll say yes. Are they nice legs? Do we shave them? <laughs> do we wear stockings? Do you see, do you see what just a happened? A feminine leg never came into my mind for some reason. Well, the yeah. thing is, if we're talking about gherat, yeah. you say gherat, suddenly I think we got to cover up. Yeah. Can, can you put a hijab on Pakistan? Yeah. Should Pakistan only wear long skirts? What are we talking about? Yeah. It's a country. Yeah. It has interests. Yeah. We should pursue those interests unapologetically. What are those interests? Hmm. Those interests, it would seem to be reasonable, would be peace and stability at home that affords us the opportunity to maximize material utility to the extent possible, along with freedom for everybody to pursue spiritual and non-linear, non-material utilities. Mm-hmm. That should be our national interest. To me, that is the national interest of every country. There's nothing unique about it. Now, does what I, we... I, mean, I just want to add something there. So I do think that when you use... Now, I, I might, you're right. I might be giving too much slack to this, but when you articulate things for, let's say, a political purpose or one that is supposed to be engendered and understood by a population that may not necessarily view it with the same depth or interest. Gherat could be that exactly what you just said, which is that you are able to do things on your own. No, 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 no. Gherat in Pakistan, in the Pakistani, first of all, Gherat is a Pakistani word. Yes. Right? Like it's just, it's, it's a Pakistani word. Yeah. Which means it exists within the specific constraints and contours of the context in which it's used. Gherat is a word that is used to disabuse women of their agency, essentially, hmm. right? I'm sorry to be that no, sort no, of explicitly no, feminist fine. about yeah. it, right? And so really, Gherat is about covering up and yeah. preventing feminine agency, yeah. right? That's why I described, you know, and asked the question about legs, but, and you should have seen your face. Yeah. Like you were genuinely confused as to where I was taking it. Yeah. But now you understand, right? Yeah. Okay, so my but point anyhow, is... In my mind, Gherat was at that point a synonym for honor, but I do agree that we can't... I forgot that you're all Pashtun and yeah. you, have, you have non-feminine sort yeah. of aspects to your culture. In fact, I mean, women are non-existent in, in Pashtun culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that a true? problem. Not... Everywhere, not in every stage, but yes, it's, I can't uh, ignore the problem is definitely there. But I, so I see what you're saying, right? But I'm just saying again, is that this particular thing that when we, it's kind of disappointing. Like after the high of the whole Yemen thing, you've, we seem to have gone back into that old rut or any external challenge being spoken of in these particular terms. Because... If, you're, if you've said, okay, in principle that, okay, we're done with the U.S. and we're going, whereas I think we're hoping that it still continues, but we'd also like to, you know, speak badly. We'd like to, you know, antagonize the relationship at the same time. So I'm just trying to understand is that at this particular point in time that when, why is it so difficult to say that we want to make this work with them? We want to have good relations with others. We want to have a multi-stakeholder uh, level of engagement with countries, which includes aid and which includes support, which includes support to military, X, Y, Z. This particular aspect of like making it into... Because I, I, I spoke to somebody recently, and I hope we have him on the program one of these days, Rauf Hassan. He said one thing which I really liked. He said, is that the age of the zero-sum game is over. 
whereas we insist our policy appears to be zero-sum in some respects, at least when we immediately respond to something. And lastly, the thing I want to ask you is that you've had experience in the Foreign Office. Why is it that the Foreign Office, in some respects, is still stuck in a relatively older, for lack of a better word, paradigm, where they're still thinking, you know, where the opening paragraph is still Pakistan formed in this thing, very difficult, this, that, that, you know, like very typical oriented, like when we have to deal with somebody in the U.S., which is frankly new for everyone involved, every country is having an issue, why is it that we're not dealing with this as well as we could? On the foreign office question, yeah. I'm going to let you, as my friend and brother, decide whether I speak completely openly or whether I continue to observe a degree of decorum. Okay. It's been just under five years. In January, it'll be five years since I left. Hmm. My policy has been to be very reverential and respectful of the Foreign Service of Pakistan, the officers that work there, yeah. and the Foreign Office writ large. Uh, I have never really openly shared my views about the quantum of capacity there. I've always said that they have great capacity and we have a bunch of really competent officers and they're patriots and everything. And and much of what I've said is true. I haven't supplemented that truth with other truths about its capacity. As my friend and brother, would you, would you, would you think I should continue to be... Uh, circumspect in my views about the foreign office or having seen Basit and Azaz behave publicly the way they have would you want me to also jump yeah, into no, the I don't approve of that at all I, however I do think in your case so you, you know one thing that I have an issue with often is that I believe if you've done service to this country you should shut up for five years right or at least three right don't write any books immediately or while you're in service, because I just think that not just the decorum of the office, but it has very real policy repercussions when you know people start spilling the beans and things. I, but I think five years is enough that you can speak openly now and it can't be held against you. Because it's a privilege, right? It is a privilege to work for your country. And after that... It was for me one, one yeah. of the... I think professionally was the greatest privilege of my life. To, to, be, to be with the members of the Foreign Service of Pakistan, to be welcomed by them the way that I was, uh, to have had the opportunity to serve the country. I was appointed, you know, formally by the Prime Minister of Pakistan. It was a huge, yeah, it was a huge privilege. Um, and I learned a lot, and I think we made a bit of a difference. You know, I joined four days after Salala. Hmm. And I think Salala essentially is what turned my decision. You know, I'd had the offer for, for a long time. And after Salala, I really felt that there was no wiggle room. And, and so I joined. You didn't ask for an autobiographical uh, response. Um, but I, I guess it's all very personal, at least all my work, whether it's the stuff I've done on education or the stuff before that or the stuff before that. And that too has been a privilege that you get to be this intimately engaged with your with your work. Uh, why the question you asked was why isn't the foreign office better at dealing with these kinds of challenges? And I think the fair answer is that the one fair answer is that the way in which authority has been sucked up the t to the top of the pyramid over a process of many decades and mostly informed by 
dictatorial regimes. That's not dictators' regimes. Yeah. It's also that after a dictator is served, the first impulse of the first elected leader is to behave in the way the dictator did because the dictator didn't have the restraints and had much more power. And so elected leaders have seen that over generations and have wanted to enjoy the same one window operation. And so in fact, whether it's the PPP or the PMLN, we have seen a centralizing of uh, executive authority in the top office. We have seen the, the restricting, the limiting and the disabusement of the cabinet in particular and the parliament. So you see that the parliament and the cabinet not as important as you would think they would be in a parliamentary cabinet-based system. Uh, whereas the prime minister's office, the secretary to the prime minister, very, very powerful, again, having to do with the centralization of power. How does this relate to the foreign office? Over the years, there used to be a time when a grade 17 officer would be the note taker for a meeting between principals. So for example, prime minister of Pakistan is meeting the prime minister of Bangladesh. Maybe the foreign secretary would be in the room, but oftentimes the foreign secretary would not be in the room. It would be an additional secretary from the prime minister's office who represents the foreign office. And there'd be a great 17 officer of the relevant desk of the South Asia desk who would be in the room making notes. This is 30 years ago. But over the, over the years, it's come to the point where sometimes it's now the foreign secretary who's taking the notes for those mm -hmm. meetings. Now, what that means is that you've kicked out the 17, 18, 19, and 20 great officers from the room. The so the training, rounds. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. the training of those officers that used to happen hands-on, they used to be involved in the actual conduct of foreign policy, has now become something they learn from experience. The other big thing that's happened is that one of the abiding qualifications today to move up the ranks is the kind of personal staff of city that you've done. Yeah. Being a staff officer to a foreign secretary, to a foreign minister, to an advisor on foreign affairs, or to another principal, or being involved in managing the office of somebody important. That is a logistical nightmare, and the people who are rewarded uh, for kind of doing that kind of work tend to be the ones that keep moving up the chain. They get the good posts. So for example, if an officer has served in the foreign secretary's office, then the foreign secretary becomes ambassador to some really, uh, some really important post. What's gonna happen? He's gonna take him with he's him. He's gonna take him with yeah. him. Now, he's in a really important post, and the next time this youngster is now looking for another job, the next foreign secretary is gonna see Let's say the other guy retired. Next foreign secretary is going to see, hey, that guy really liked this youngster. He must be really good on his feet. So now I'm going to make him my personal staff officer. So we have had in the last few years, and, and I can actually track this for a number of senior officers, their movement up the chain has been on the back of staff of city. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because staff of city is an important aspect of learning how public policy. Yeah. works but it can't be the overwhelming thing that drives that right you have to you should ideally you should ideally uh, know how to write a good memo which which is a real challenge now in today's foreign office you should ideally understand public diplomacy and how to engage with the populations of other countries. You should ideally have some skills in terms of consular relations. You should have management skills and administrative skills and financial skills. 
And our foreign service officers are not being given the opportunities and the structure and, and, the, and the politics around the foreign office is not going to allow that to happen. We need a pretty significant reform of how we conduct foreign policy and how we conceive of and run the foreign office before we can have better and bigger expectations of our foreign service officers. So one of the things that I've also been wondering about is in a worst case scenario, and I've just been projecting that out in my mind. Militarily, I think the US's options are limited, obviously, because what can you do with a nuclear powered state and one which has a formidable army? The real option, which I don't know if people uh, are considering enough, is that the real levers that they can use is to make you suffer economically and cut off banking channels. Um, your periodic you know, aid that you need when we talk about a sanctions regime. And when we look at the kind of situation we have now, which is uh, some of the economics is stopgap economics and it's unraveling quite quickly. I'm just wondering is that, you know, when you negotiate in these particular circumstances, is there a feeling that, okay, we'll put the worst possible outcome to a side and not really think around it? Or is that something that is, in your opinion, parliament understands it, the bureaucracy understands it, the military understands it? Because right now, I mean, we've seen countries, we've seen what happens, they don't get undone. If, you know, the thinking is like nothing can break up Pakistan, obviously that's not even probably the intent of whatever that you know punitive measure might be but what it can do is severely hamper you and right now i think pakistan is used to a degree of openness whatever slight moderated growth it has access to uh, banking channels to imports all these things will start changing and just to believe that there's a realignment going on in the region one which will probably take a decade or two uh, Jumping the gun on this is probably one of the worst things you can do right now. It's been a... I'm just going to do sort of big picture. Like, yeah. you know, when, when I think about this, as you were framing the, the kind of proposition, yeah. engaging with the elite has been the instrument of engagement of the industrialized and wealthy West yeah. with the Orient in general. Yeah. Africa this part of the world, yeah. everywhere. And it's been a long-standing uh, yeah. instrument. And what it is, is the incentivization of the elite and the quasi-elite to have interests and stakes in the success of the West yeah. that would align behavior locally that would be attuned with uh, Western objectives. Yeah. So you saw that in the East India Company, you saw that throughout the Raj, yeah. you see that in other countries today. And in fact, you see that in how these countries engage with India, with Pakistan, with Bangladesh. Yeah. They pursue their interests yeah. by essentially any means necessary. Yeah. And most of those means have the cover of institutional legitimacy based on institutions that were built by the West. Yeah. The United Nations, the IMF, the Bretton Woods construct, the global financial system, yeah. uh, the credit ratings agency. There's a whole yeah. range of instruments that... So, you know, I can understand kind of a counter-Oriental or sort of, you know, uh, quasi-neo-counter-Orientalist position that, that, that says no matter what the West does, it's basically trying to control the Orient. And yeah. in this case... The, the, the Pakistani native yeah. 
with these with these uh, with these carrots yeah. uh, for the elite. Um, but that having been said, countries are run by their elites, and so in Pakistan that happens to be a bunch of generals, uh, a bunch of aspiring generals, a bunch of uh, politicians, a bunch of aspiring prime ministers and chief ministers, and a bunch of really wealthy business people and landowners. Um, then there's people who influence the country, and you know you're one of them. Uh, to a small extent, you know, I'm one of them. People in the media have this have this ability to influence the conversation, but the decisions are made by the, by the proper lead of the country. And so, what I've been hearing, and I think you've heard this as well, is that there's there's some reason to believe that the Americans are now considering individual specific sanctions, yeah. uh, travel bans on individuals or yeah. classes of individuals, yeah. uh, restricting of access. Uh, you know, in my piece for the New York Times, I mentioned going to American universities. I'd written Harvard, and yeah. they made it American universities, I guess, yeah. because of a brand issue, and working on Wall Street. Yeah. You know, people who want to go to Harvard and who want to work on Wall Street are not struggling to get to school. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so that, that, too, is a set of incentives or disincentives, uh, from a negative standpoint, yeah. that really applies to the elite or the upper middle class in Pakistan who can actually... Imagine, or who even know what Wall Street is, yeah. right? And so, you know, kid wants to work at McKinsey. Kid has heard of McKinsey. Kid, kid knows somebody that was at McKinsey. So obviously, kid's not doing that badly. Because if you were doing that badly, you wouldn't even know what all that is. Yeah. And you wouldn't have those aspirations. I, if the question is, is the thing, are the things that America is thinking about legitimate? Well, they're certainly legitimate from the U.S. standpoint. But are they going to work? Well, they're not going to work. Yeah. Because... That's assuming that the in narrow individual interests of groups of people, of an entire class of people, will trump the collective perceived interests of the country. And this is not to say that our generals and our politicians and our businessmen are so patriotic that they would put country first. Far from it. It is to say that whilst you can make that happen on individuals, and you would obviously use those individuals as scapegoats and as, as examples, yeah. right? You want to set examples? you're not going to be able to do that to the entire elite. And the calculus in the West, and this is again going back to the original engaging with the elite instrument, uh, the whole premise of that is that you don't want to engage with the native because the native is savage, right? And of course the elite in this country has done a superb job of convincing the world that it is the elite that actually keeps things together. Mm. So for eight, for, for, so for donkey's ears, especially in the Musharraf era, it was... You've had 9-11, you have this Afghanistan thing, don't mess with, the, with the whole, this whole democracy thing. Yeah. It's really Musharraf that's keeping everything together. Lo and behold, Musharraf is gone. He's going around on TV making a, one ridiculous assertion after another. Nobody pays attention to him, and Pakistan's doing just, you know, a-okay. Yeah. So I think the point is that there is no individual or group of individuals among the elite who are so important that by sanctioning them or taking them out in the worst case scenario, yeah. that you will be able to alter the strategic calculus or the decision making of Pakistan. I don't think you will. So I think the reason I wrote the New York Times piece, Fussy, was that I felt that we had to try to, I think as Pakistanis, convince the US that, hey, we understand that we've made a bunch of mistakes and we've had some real clowns make those mistakes for us. But you have to understand that we're not crazy and there are legitimate things that we're worried about 
and, and I said it in the piece, I mean, yeah. basically, Pakistan is worried that India is going to have a free run in Afghanistan and use that free run to harm Pakistan. Now, is that paranoia? I mean, some people think it is. Uh, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more sort of, uh, I lean towards thinking that it's not paranoia without basis. There are both historical bases for it, and there's some evidence, if not a smoking gun, and there never is in these matters, that, uh, that India does quite enjoy the ability to put the fear of God into Pakistani strategists. And I think there's an element of Pakistani strategists lapping it up, because by doing that, they continue to confirm and, and sustain their own uh, centrality to this country's future. So I think it's very, very complicated and some simplistic set of sanctions or a travel ban or, you know, having the IMF. I mean, the IMF can reject a, a, a loan uh, sort of request. Pakistan's going to float a sukuk. Uh, Pakistan's going to go to the bond market. And don't forget the AIB, AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Bank, uh, didn't have the support of the U.S., but the U.K. went ahead and supported it in any way. There's the BRICS Bank, there's, there's China per se, there's CPEC. There's a lot of options. Now, I'm not suggesting that Pakistan should use those options. I, I think that it would be a terrible mistake for Pakistan to in any way reject the United States. Pakistan needs to find a way to embrace the United States with a view to its own interests. The United States has been a partner to Pakistan and can continue to be a partner to Pakistan. And Pakistan has to be smart enough to employ the good offices of the United States to its advantage instead of having the good offices of the United States to its disadvantage. You know, the interesting thing that keeps coming up in my mind is that we're at a stage where, well, at least I am, that I'm hoping that America's democracy works that this guy gets up because frankly I mean if there was any way to measure global influence with a way that could look you know that could tap into soft power relatively accurately I think he's probably shrunk it more than anyone has ever done and the interesting thing is that even amongst their policy elites who might not have a favorable view of Pakistan but they do have a realistic view as well of what's required in the region and how their own presence can be supported. And in one way, when you look at Trump and you hope that you know he gets impeached as soon as possible, uh, I, I, I was reading this interesting... I, by the way, I don't hope that. I, I mean, I know you do and yeah. others do. I, I... Why, why are you loving Trump? No, it's not about loving Trump. It's, uh, you know, I had, frankly, I had hoped that, you know, Nawaz Sharif would get to finish five years. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that countries should have to live with their decisions. Yeah. And think through the consequences of those decisions. Yeah. And any system that cuts it off midstream yeah. gives grist, uh, gives, gives fuel to what is now not a cottage industry but like an industrial strength sort of you know conspiracy instinct the world over so Our, we have entire mainstream media yeah, yeah. that are built around it so it's interesting you say this but i think there's a difference in that case if you collude with another country if effectively like the conspiracy theory in pakistan were true that you know modi ka yaar modi ka yaar and that's how he got elected and that's and what they're saying about uh, trump Yes, but, but there's actually more than enough evidence that doesn't really. Say what was Sajjan? What was Sajjan Jindal doing here early summer this year? What what purpose did he have in that visit at that time? 
Oh, that was a ridiculous thing. Uh, so so no, I'm I'll saying, say, like, so you and I... He had the it. right to do it. Yeah. But <laughs> he had the right to do it. But again, in terms of anyone... Yeah, anyone could have told him. What were they thinking? What were they thinking, so right? Here, so you and I are... Look, let's be fair. Yeah. You and I are both sympathetic to whoever is the elected government. Yes. That's probably what the... That right? is true. Now, yeah. not, everybody, not everybody knows us yeah. and has read everything we've written and yeah. seen everything we've said. Yeah. And so people can be forgiven yeah. for hearing us say that it's ridiculous that we would say Modi Gayar yeah. based on that trip, which yeah. I think it is. I yeah. mean, I think it was a ridiculous thing that they did to set up... Dumb thing to do. Really to do. dumb thing yeah. to do. But I don't think that makes my, you know, our former prime minister, yes. uh, Modi Gaya. Yeah. But people will see us as being partisan yes. and pro-Sharif. Yes. Right? Now, yeah. now, switch this. We're in America and yeah. you are, uh, not fussy, but yeah. f- Frank. Frank. And I'm not Musharraf, but Manish, because, right. you know, America's full of, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm, Manish was my best friend in grade six growing right. up, Manish. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, you and I are hanging out, and we're partial to Trump. Yes. Or we're perceived to be partial to Trump, and we yeah. say, sure, there's some indications that Trump was colluding with, that some of Trump's friends were colluding with the Russians, but the, does that really make him impeachable? Yeah. Right? We're perceived as being part. Do you see the... I think the parallels are not ridiculous. No. So I, I know what you're saying, and I think it's quite intelligent, actually. It's a good point you make. I wonder if I was in America, and I'd also wonder that, you know, the term process has to be sacrosanct. In this particular case, I find that it's difficult. But I, I do... I mean, on Noah Sharif's case, there is a couple of... Uh, contingency exceptions that I have like if you remember you know the problem I had with the memo gate case also was that you know you just choose to target one person but once it comes to court or once it comes to an investigation there's nothing you can do like nobody can be elected and we say okay you can't be prosecuted for anything whatsoever my issue was that you know the whole Panama thing shouldn't have come to it right now. Maybe it could have come later because the idea of removing someone midstream is problematic. And in, in Pakistan, Pakistan benefits if at least somebody gets to do one full term. Um, but if it is something that is, you know, provable, if it is an offense, then yes, going ahead. Like we see right now, like some of the warnings that we gave. So you support the Supreme Court 5 nil decision? No, I don't. You know, I, I, I'm okay with it, right? I think it was harsh. But I, th- I, I saw a year and a half yeah. in terms of opportunity for the first family to defend themselves, explain themselves, buy time, do yeah. ho- hook or crook, find a way out of it. A year and a half. The resources of the prime minister's office, the sympathies of 60, 70% of the electorate in terms of what you know, the assembly yeah. you know, uh, represents, yeah. and you still... Okay, I'll tell you, you still yeah. you still are doing Calibri, yeah, yeah. like you know. So I'm sorry, it it is harsh. No, the, the judgment I, 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 is harsh. No, no, but I, but I'm, I'm just, sorry, you dug that you dug that no, grave no. for yourself. We're talking about historical mistakes at every corner. On probably every day, we can find something where Nawaz Sharif could have redeemed himself and done the right thing, but he didn't. But when the judgment came out, right, and when you read the judgment, the problem is that in that particular judgment, so. When you read it and it says, okay, this whole receivable things, the whole JIT, everything, 
the whole Panama case. It didn't become about that. Then there's a problem with that. Two judges decided on one base of evidence, three on another, then they decide to reconstitute as five. That pro that's a problem because you want a judgment to stand the test of time and acknowledge that the system worked and it did it as it was supposed to. In that particular case, if they had just referred it to the election commission and then he had been removed, I would have loved it. I would have said that is perfect. Why? Because yeah, that we, became... But we don't... You know, Pakistan, I think... Salman Tassil was... No, no, but let me just interrupt. Now. So you see, then, then you have opportunities after that. The opportunity, like Zadari is just, the NAB references have gone because they say that we've got the photocopies, the originals have been destroyed. You can get the originals again, you don't have to close the case. Uh, you know, suspiciously, Hanif Abbasi, who's running a case against the PTI right now, you know, his assets are frozen, you know, a case has been come up. The whole idea behind this was, and the reason the naysayers were saying, is that We've seen over 70 years that justice, justice is just over, you know, it's selective, and then right after that, everyone forgets it. And so that's the thing, is that if we were to get something out of this right now, is these other cases that we're talking about, they should have been pursued as seriously. It's not. amazing that we took a conversation about foreign policy and Trump yeah. and made it into JIT in Panama. Absolutely. I think it's, it speaks it's to the sign of, topic. It's a sign of the times. I guess what I'm saying is it wasn't ideal that Sharif was sent home so close to the end of his term where he was going to royally screw up the election anyway. And yeah. you can see shades of that in this ridiculous show yeah. uh, post-suspension uh, that the PMLN has put on in terms of the conduct of the former first family. Actually quite encouraging on the other side, everything yeah. in Islamabad seems to be relatively better than it was. A yeah. lot more energy and efficiency in the Prime Minister's office. Three NSC meetings. Yeah, I think, he's doing I think they've already surpassed, yeah. exactly. They've already surpassed the total number of NSC meetings that, that Sharif presided over. But I, I do think, have one thing I want to say is post-disqualification, I think Nawaz Sharif is now potentially endangering the system. And he's already mentioned to the BBC that why should it be just my responsibility? Well, unfortunately, you've been prime minister thrice. It's come to you. And this whole thing, if he really wanted to do the right thing, it's all about saving himself and becoming eligible again. That is problematic to me. No, it's worse. Yeah. It's worse than that. It's about saving the space for his daughter to yeah. become so, so prime minister. These, and and yeah. I am I'm public, I've said it many times yeah. I really like Mariam Nawaz Sharif right. in person, as a person. Yeah. She, I think, you know, she conducts herself very nicely. She's got some great ideas. She's hardworking. But I'm sorry, she's not Benazir Bhutto. Yeah. Her dad is not Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. This is not 1970 anything. Yeah. It's 2017. Uh, this country and the young people in this country deserve a little more respect than what's being afforded to them by a process in which the biggest party in the country is really wrapped and gripped in a fight that is a family feud over power. 
This is yeah. like Dada Shiko and, and, and Odin. I mean, it's ridiculous that we're having to witness this nonsense. We're, we're a modern country. We've yeah. got these amazing young people. Even the ones who are giving me a Like, There's so much energy. These kids want a better country. Big deal. You know, yeah. They don't like you. They don't, I mean, they like you. They don't like me. Whatever. It's fine. Yeah. You know, these kids deserve a chance at a better leader than anything that's on offer. And so you know what I'm yeah. talking about, right? This is not an appeal yeah. for, for Imran Khan. Quite, I mean, I, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't see myself going there. Yeah. But, but I can say that this conduct, where it's just a fight within a family, uh, I find it insulting to the aspirations and the possibilities for young Pakistanis. So I'm going to say something here that I think is even problematic in terms of what I believe, but what I really believe right now for Nawaz Sharif is, is that dude, secure your legacy, which means make sure your party runs. That means we won't be amenable to the kind of brokering that creates cough leagues and things like that and distorts our elections. And at the same time is that, you know, somebody's got to gracefully retire and frankly, he's not gone gracefully whatsoever. Um, and to be fair, it's like even I do think that there was much more resources put into the JIT, which made when we talk of a conspiracy. However, post that, one of the things that we expected was that there would be a level of torpor where, you know, people would be leaving the party and it would be engaged in a way that would create ideal outcomes for more establishment level parties to come to power. That hasn't happened yet. And I think... Yeah, but there's still... Just I, to take your point further, Fasim. Yeah. I, so that... It, maybe that won't even happen. So that means they've given him the space to do the right thing. And I hope he does the right thing. And I think the right thing is to look at the, the potential of how many airports and streets will be named Nawaz Sharif Boulevard and Nawaz Sharif Airport. And I think there'll be a, quite a few. Yeah. If... He does what you said. Yeah. Go out gracefully. Yeah. Hand the party to the person that deserves it. Yeah. And nobody deserves it more than Shabazz Sharif. Yeah. That's the kind of Marusi Siyasat you can live with because this is a guy that's built a 20-year, 25-year record of delivery. Yeah. And, you know, he's not... I don't think he has what Nawaz Sharif has in terms of likability. But I think he should, he should have a chance to run that party. And also... When he's running that party, I don't think it'll be as popular as, as it is in a perfect yeah, Nawaz yeah. Sharif version. Yeah. But what that does is that takes us away from the notion of permanent government for the Sharifs, yeah. which also is a good thing. Yeah. I'd like to see a much more robust debate in the Punjab Assembly next, uh, next round. Yeah. As much as I like Shabazz Sharif, mm-hmm. I think Shabazz Sharif needs to be challenged by a robust parliament mm-hmm. and by an internal party conversation where it's not just people kissing the ring in, in Lahore and in yeah. Islamabad, but it's people that are challenging, you know, how the party is being run and how the country is being run and making Although that to be process fair, better. That process probably would be more under a Nawaz Sharif than a Shabazz Sharif. The, the openness? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, uh, Nawaz is, he can tolerate four members of his cabinet. Nawaz has got that Zardari, <laughs> he's got that Zardari thing too. Live and let live thing yeah, as well, yeah. yeah. Which, which by the way, I think is a good thing. I, I think in parties you need that. It's not just in parties, man. That's yeah. what politics is. It's yeah. the art of the possible, yeah. not the art of the, of the normative. Yeah. You know? and, and, and I think, yeah, I think the country is going to be in a better place if Nawaz Sharif goes quietly into the night. And 
because this is what's going to affect the elections. We need to have, this is the realistic view, we need to have elections in 2018. Here's the problem. We're yeah. saying this, but if we see a series of other wickets start to fall, yeah. and there seems to be a pattern to it, then I think you and I are going to change our tune real quick. Yeah, pro- yeah because right now, there... There's a legitimacy to the whole thing? There's, because, frankly, the conspiracy that you and I believed in, it's not panning out. It's not. Right? But if it started to... If it started to, then the opinion will change. I agree, absolutely. We started the conversation, Fassi, on Trump and Afghanistan. Yeah. We're ending it on the conduct of our local domestic political scene. I don't think the two are not related. In fact, I think the two are intimately related. Mm-hmm. Until our foreign policies and national security policies do not reflect the coherence that we need to have domestically, yeah. we'll continue to be talked to in the disrespectful and undignified way in which President Donald Trump spoke to us during his speech to his people. Yeah. I pray that you will have a wonderful week. You too, and I hope everyone else does as well. Khudafiz everyone, Eid Mubarak. See you next time. You know they can't see us, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>